the best part about doing these interviews is that occasionally we'll have a repeat guest, but usually we talk to new people. So I can tell the same dumb stories and they're always like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, uh, I can have high confidence that you haven't heard, heard my anecdotes before. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, Joining us today is uh, Stephanie Small. Uh, Stephanie is a registered dietitian who did her bachelor's and master's of exercise physiology at Florida State, uh, but recently has moved up to Toronto and is doing her PhD at the University of Toronto. And uh, Stephanie reached out to me um, offering to help with uh, nutrition for my coached athletes. And then we got to talking and I told her, well, you know, my, my coaching practice is, uh, is, is still an important part of my life, but it's not currently the, the big focus. Um, but I produced this podcast. And if she was willing to come on and share her, uh, share her research and her experience with us on the show. And uh, she graciously agreed. And uh, here we are. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. Um, so one of the things that you say on your bio on your website is that you're an introvert, which is uh, <laughs> it's kind of how I self-describe as well. And it's uh, before we we jumped into the show, you were telling us how you, you know, you almost forced yourself to take these opportunities to uh, spread the message to the masses. So um, tell us a little bit more about uh, about yourself. Uh, I kind of give a very high level introduction and uh, so that people get to know you before we jump into the the main topic of conversation for today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like Michael said, I I went to school at Florida State University, um, and that's where I fell in love with research, but specifically like sports nutrition research. And the professor that I worked with under the time, he did a lot of protein sleep metabolism, um, Hmm. some supplements, collagen peptides, those sort of things. And he focused on endurance athletes or just athletes in general. And so that's kind of where I started to dive headfirst, and it was super exciting fell in love with it. Um, So I absolutely knew I wanted to go in research. And as time progressed, I found out that nutrition research is not relayed effectively. Um, Most researchers are introverted. We don't like to go out and talk (laughs) and socialize. Um, And while I I am introvert, I do love spreading the message. I love when those light bulbs go off when I'm working with clients. I love the messaging get across because as you guys probably know, there's a lot of misinformation out there on nutrition. And I want to make sure that it's, Mm -hmm. it's like out there in the right way. And so graduated, got my RD registered dietitian, and I moved to Boston where I become a research dietitian for the military and super fun, exciting. But that's where I started to dive headfirst into carbohydrate metabolism, which is the paper that I sent you. And yeah, I, I knew I wanted to do research. And at the time I was starting my private practice So I was able to work with clients, kind of get them with their feeling plan. And then because I wanted to run research as well, I'm here at Toronto, University of Toronto to get my PhD so I can run research myself. 
And after a couple of years of your PhD, I think you'll probably start saying Toronto like uh, native Torontonians do. So the <laughs> last T is silent. Oh. <laughs> there but, you go. That's uh, your that's your that's your lesson for the day. That's the that's the education exchange. You teach us about uh, about uh, sports nutrition, and we'll teach you how to pronounce Toronto properly. Sounds good. I like it. <laughs> But I think it's uh, it's a really interesting problem you you touched on just for the the broader perspective where there's so many research researchers out there and so many very smart people but sometimes the communication to the the broader public is such a challenge so it's fantastic uh, that you're trying to to reach out and try to educate people because uh, it's such a gap because let's face it not not everyone in the general public goes out and does a lit review all the time and there's a lot of misinformation out there so. Mm-hmm. We, we very much welcome the educated opinion and the, uh, uh, the data-backed uh, thoughts that you'll have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, as I like Instagram and social media kind of picked up the past few years, you see the people that have the most influence on individuals are the ones that are extroverted and they are not necessarily always the most educated or care about the research side of things. And that's where that misinformation I find kind of comes about. There's another podcast that comes to mind that's been in the news recently, <laughs> but uh, let's not touch yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah, that could, we could spend a lot of time talking about that podcast. Um, but I noticed recently, Stephanie, that I think it was an Instagram post of yours. And uh, of course, now I follow you on Instagram uh, about maybe it's a blog article that you did about how to interpret, uh, read and interpret uh, scientific literature. And I think that's really, really useful mm-hmm. and, a, and a handy thing for, for the general public, because there's a lot to be gained from uh, being able to to read and digest that information and not be intimidated by it because you know I've read I've read a number of articles let's say but they're still it's still um it's still a little bit daunting for me when I sit down and I see that it's you know 38 pages and I'm like oh man I'm not sure that I have 2 <laughs> hours right now to really like dive deep into into the into the research here and if I just read the abstract and the and the discussion at the very end I feel like you know I'm the guy who just reads who who retweets the article and doesn't read the you know doesn't read the body of the thing. And then, uh, you know, I'm doing a disservice to both myself and then the people that follow me as well. Yeah, I mean, it is hard. I mean, we're not taught the research articles are just a very unique jargon and terminology that the general public just it's just so hard to comprehend. So mm-hmm. my idea is if I can start with the basics, like what's the stru- I think I did a post on the structure of the article and then like what are the each sections mean and how you can start to interpret it. And hopefully slowly people can be more exposed to it and start to be able to be more comfortable and maybe try it out and those sort of things. Uh, but you're exactly right. People, it's it's hard to read. I remember in high school reading Shakespeare, where there's all the, the notes on the side, like what this line actually means. It, it <laughs> seems like papers could benefit from something like that. Well, that would be great. Have them annotated that way? Yeah, yes. that would be cool. So uh, talking about articles, uh, Stephanie, is a nice segue into the article that you sent me when we were first corresponding. And that mm-hmm. was um, titled, The Impact of Dietary Carbohydrate Restriction Versus Energy Restriction on Exogenous Carbohydrate Oxidation During Aerobic Exercise. So we're talking about like articles being difficult to understand. Understand. So that that title itself is a bit of a mouthful, um, but uh, it was it was a really interesting one because um, obviously carbohydrate in in endurance exercise plays a very very important role. And as you said earlier, or maybe alluded to earlier, there's definitely some misinformation around uh, the evidence around mm-hmm. uh, how carbohydrate plays that role. So we started chatting about this, and it's a uh, it's a great place to launch our discussion. So in uh, you know a high level, can you tell us what you found? Yeah, absolutely. I do want to preface this was what's called a narrative review. A narrative review is when um, professors or end of researchers take 
a couple of different papers that are very similar and kind of have a general outcome based off them. They compare them, pros and cons, and kind of come to a consensus, um, which is kind of the whole point of research. So <laughs> we were taking a look. So we wanted to know if carbohydrate metabolism was impacted if you were in a low carbohydrate state. Um, but however, what we see is that you're either in a low carbohydrate state with maintenance calories, so you're eating enough calories, just eating a high fat diet. But sometimes mm -hmm. we see low carbohydrate diets, but they're not eating enough calories. So think of like mild starvation almost. Okay? Um, and so we wanted to know if carbohydrates during training are metabolized the same, whether you are energy restricted or not eating enough calories or just on a low calorie diet. Yeah, that's a really important distinction because, you, you, as you say, you can definitely do both. There are folks who are, let's say, maybe they're trying to become fat adapted, so they're meeting their caloric demands, uh, including all their training and activity caloric demands, but with a low carbohydrate intake versus people who are just, you know, trying to run a calorie deficit. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think of people who are dieting or trying to lose weight, this could kind of where that plays a big role in, in that carbohydrate metabolism. Mm -hmm. So what did, uh, what did you find in the review? So... If you are on a low carbohydrate diet and eating enough calories, your ability to metabolize carbohydrates during training is not impacted. Hmm. Okay. Um, you do burn more fat, so that is something that does happen, but you still have the ability to use carbohydrates as fuel if you have a high fat diet or if you're more fat adapted. So that's a really important point because if you are fat adapted or choose to do a low carbohydrate diet for training, but let's say you're bonking or you're fatiguing during your race, you can still take in like an energy gel or a sports drink and get that extra boost from the carbohydrates, right? However, if you're in a caloric deficit, you actually do not have that same ability. So if you're uh, not eating enough calories or you're in a starved state or, or whatever it may be, or a fasted state, you may not be able to metabolize those carbohydrates like you should. And so you're not getting the benefit of having a carbohydrate during your workout, which we all know is, is extremely important. Hmm. So what's the, what's the time scale on this state? Are we looking at, uh, you know, over the course of a week prior to the exercise that it matters, or is it just immediately leading up like that day if you're in a uh, caloric de deficit or um, how, how does it play out? Yeah, it's a great question. So most of the studies that we looked at was over a 24 to 48 hour period. And what they did before that time period started is they made sure that all muscle glycogen or all stored carbohydrates in the muscle were depleted. So they had what we call a glycogen depleted depletion protocol. So they either bike really hard for a certain period of time. So they're completely out of carbohydrates that are stored in the muscle to kind of um, initiate that impairment it per se. Like we mm -hmm. wanted to make that process quicker. So we didn't have to starve someone for, you know, two weeks to get them to that point. <laughs> that was kind of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so if I'm, if I'm reading this, uh, I, I could, I could be thinking to myself, huh? So if I, I could, uh, I could maybe use some of these protocols of, of, you know, glycogen depletion, or I could be on a carbohydrate restricted diet in order to maybe improve my fat adaptation and then get all the benefits of, uh, carbohydrate supplementation only during my racing. Mm -hmm. Now, um, my kind of understanding of this, of the science is that there's there's definitely a demand for or a requirement for practicing the intake of carbohydrate during training and during uh, especially race pace 
um, activities uh, mm-hmm. prior to the race in order to get the most out of it. And by the most, I mean, you know, maximizing the the safe ingestion amount of, of carbohydrate, right? Like, and you've, I've heard it referred to as training the gut. So mm-hmm. how can we square those two things of one being that your, your findings are that you um, don't really need to be consuming dietary carbohydrates in order to see the, uh, the, uh, the uh, benefit of taking it during exercise with also having to train the gut. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and so something that's important or a distinction I want to make is that, so w- this is when I was with the military. So a lot of our military soldiers, when they're on missions, they get, they don't have enough energy, like they don't have enough food to carry in their packs and those sort of things. So that's kind of the reason why we're looking at this starvation perspective. Uh, on a athlete perspective, you're again, we're taking a look at it, like if they're in their caloric deficit, they're trying to meet weight or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, we're not telling people like, hey, you should do a low f- or a low carbohydrate diet. Um, low carbohydrate diets haven't been shown to necessarily impair performance as long as you have um, adequate time to kind of adapt to that. But there are nece- not necessarily any performance benefits. So you still should definitely be training with carbohydrates throughout your training season to make sure that your gut can actually adequately intake those carbohydrates when you're in the race. So if you're Mm -hmm. on a low carbohydrate diet for the past four weeks, you go into a race and you find that you're, you're bonking, don't take in like four gels. Like you would actually trash your gut. (laughs) Do not do that. Um, but there's also this other concept we talked a little bit about of, of train low, compete high, um, which is where, individuals will train in a low carbohydrate state, um, but they'll race with carbohydrates. But the really big misconception there is that individuals who train low and compete high still consume adequate carbohydrates during the day. They just will have a training session where they are in a carbohydrate depleted state. So for example, they would do a very high intense workout in the evening And then they'll go to sleep. They won't eat anything or maybe they'll just have some protein and maybe some vegetables. And then that morning, they'll have an easy training session um, that they don't have any carbohydrates for. They'll complete it, but then they'll get their carbohydrate intake back in. So that that train low approach, uh, I've got a a couple of questions around that. Um, Are you trying to do all or most of your training sessions in that low carbohydrate state or is it just the occasional training session? What's the what's been shown in the research? Yeah. So most of the time it's going to be a more of an easy recovery session. It's not going to be a quality session. So if you're Mm -hmm. doing repeats, tempos or you're trying to do a race pace or anything like that, you want to make sure that you're adequately trained. You're training the carbohydrates using fuel and those sort of things. It's going to be those long you know, steady state sessions that may be, you know, 60 to 90 minutes long, but you're not really having to push anything, right? You're not having to push towards the end or push up hills or anything like that. It's something that's going to be a really steady state. And the whole concept behind that is it, it is trying to improve your capacity to switch energy systems. So we have three primary energy systems. Mm -hmm. We have, uh, ATP creatine cycle, then you have aerobic and then non-aerobic. So with or without oxygen, without right. oxygen, that's the one where you're using fat with oxygen. That's the one where you're using carbohydrates. Um, you use all of those interchangeably, typically throughout your workout, but one's mm-hmm. going to be predominant more than the other, but it's the person's ability to switch from energy system to energy system at a given point in time. 
right? So let's say again, like you're going up a hill, your ability to switch from using carbo or using fats to carbohydrates to kind of give yourself that push up the hill is what's going to mm-hmm. make the difference between a person who is not. So I'm sorry, you said that uh, the one without oxygen uses fat. I thought it was the other way around. That primarily the the anaerobic system was was uh, very glycogen yeah. dependent. Yeah, you okay. are. I mixed up my words. Uh, yes. Right. No. No. Sorry. Okay. I just wanted to <laughs> double check because unless there was some some brand new research that I wasn't uh, that I wasn't aware of. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, awesome. Okay. So, um, what about, uh, I know, and I know this is something that we talked about in our, in our email exchange. Uh, what is the evidence that, uh, for example, this, this approach of, uh, training low, racing high, what evidence is there on, of its impact on performance? Um, so it, it's impact on performance. I actually, there was a paper that come out literally like a week ago that used oh, cool. it as far as like a feasibility trial. So it was actually done by, um, Dr. James Morton in Liverpool, who actually coaches a lot of the European cyclists and, and he practices, he's really big on the train low concept. Okay. So the capacity to make a higher, um, wattage output for a five and 20 minute trial actually improved, but a one minute trial of peak power output was not able to be maintained when they were in that train low state. However, individuals who consume were not in the, were in the control group. So they had adequate carbs. They had refueled for the session and those sort of things. They experienced the same outcomes. So it's not like it was better than the other. Mm. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't the dietary intervention that that you know elicited these effects. It was maybe the training intervention itself. Well, there was no training intervention, so it was just purely the train low concept. And they had fifty five trained cyclists, and it was over a two week period. They had six sessions. Oh, okay. So there was no like, yeah, okay. So there was no no um, stipulated training yeah. program that they were following. It just didn't okay. it didn't hurt performance. Okay. Okay. So there was no there was no difference in the in the. But I mean, like, yeah, it's a pretty short span of time, right? Like the one minute obviously yeah. is very heavily glycolytic. I mean, it's aerobic and glycolytic. And then what What were the other five and 20 minutes? Yes. Yeah. So those are more, obviously the 20 minutes is probably, is overwhelmingly aerobic, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it's not the, 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 you know, the, the argument that I've always heard of, of fat adaptation and doing all of that kind of stuff is uh, you see the benefits in the truly long events, yes. you know, when you're doing multiple hours and then a lot of the coaches that I you know have respect for there they would say the tipping point is kind of north of eight hours is when you're doing really really mm-hmm. long stuff is when you really want to be you potentially want to be uh, more fat adapted um, so but there's there's a paucity of research in in those in the athletes that are doing that kind of long duration stuff because it's also kind of hard to I imagine put them in a lab for a stupid number of hours to, to see how they perform. Yes. I mean, well, they do that though. You'll have them cycle in a lab for six to eight hours and they may not be allowed to have a TV or music and they just have to cycle. It's, it's kind of intense. Um, I haven't done one that long, but, um, kind of, I guess like you alluded to, it's, it is for those longer endurance events. And I don't advocate the train low for, for more of a recreational athlete, I mean, nail down your carbohydrate um, and your nutrition first. Because even with the elite athletes, they have a hard time getting enough carbohydrates in. Um, they kind of mm-hmm. do the train low approach to kind of give them that extra push when on their they're on their long cycling events or triathlon events or whatever it may be. Um, but for your if you're more of a recreational athlete, you're doing it for fun. Maybe you do compete but you're not at that like super high level, I wouldn't worry about it. Like really focus on getting your carbohydrates in, training your gut. 
if you can consume 60 to 90 grams per hour of carbohydrates, you're solid. But mm-hmm. that takes time. Um, and I don't see it often in athletes. Um, so I do recommend nailing those down first. Personally, I find that uh, when I have a bunch of carbs before a workout, it, it just feels easier. It's a lower RP for the, yeah. the actual workout. So I guess the uh, the advice you would have then is before trying to do something like this, make sure you can nail all your workouts. Like make sure you're not losing anything from the workouts you can compete or sorry, complete. And then if that's, uh, if that's the case, if it's something that, um, you can make it through fine, then it might be worth looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a really good point. So that RPE factor in all the studies that I've seen with that train low approach, those training low sessions are always at a higher RPE, not because the intensities mm-hmm. change. It just feels harder. Um, which if these studies are typically, you know, two to three weeks, but if you're training with that consistently and your RP is high and it feels hard, that can actually just impact your training psychologically, or maybe you're not listening to the response that you're wanting to anyway. So that can also impact your Mm -hmm. overall outcome of your training session as well. I do notice that, that it's uh, psychologically hard where (laughs) I'm doing a workout that's supposed to be easy. And if I haven't fueled properly beforehand, it's like, why is this so tough? Yeah. Am I regressing? Is this a problem with my training? And then you start to get in these mind games. So, <laughs> uh, but that's my own little world. Probably other people suffer from the same thing, mm-hmm. but it is, for me, it's a big impact. Yeah. Even, um, have you ever heard of swish and spit? Uh, just carb rinsing? Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, I have. Even if you were yeah. to, to carb rinse before your session and not eat anything, you can actually re- reduce the perception of fatigue as well. So there's something within the like eating carbohydrates that just reduces the overall perception of fatigue, which is pretty cool. Is it just because carbohydrates are delicious and <laughs> everyone wants them? I think so. My own two cents, my, my personal anecdote is, uh, and I've been uh, playing around with various VO2 max eliciting uh, workouts on the bike. This is something I've been thinking a lot about and I've talked about it and I've, you know, we've, uh, we've republished the, the VO2 max episode with Kali Moore, which I think was a really good one. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of experimentation in different positions and different stuff uh, on myself just cause you know, I'm, uh, you know, a study of one usually. Uh, and one thing that is very, very obvious is if I do, first of all, I can't do them first thing in the morning. Um, and I'm pretty good at, at training first thing in the morning. And I can usually, I find I can usually do up to kind of, you know, sub threshold sort of work. And I feel just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even like on minimal, on like no, no food or, uh, or just having a little tiny bit of something before I start. But VO2 max totally doesn't work for me. I've never been able to never, never been successful. And that makes sense because I, even if I ate a reasonable dinner, I'm still probably a little bit depleted in the morning. That's my mm-hmm. thinking. But I find that when I eat like when I'm totally off my whatever nutrition plan I was trying to follow and I'm eating all sorts of junk food and all sorts of like not good carbohydrates throughout the day, if I do a workout that afternoon or that evening and it's a high intensity workout, I almost always smash it. Like it always feels great because, uh, you know, I my kind of my pet theory on that is just because I'm fully topped up and my muscle glycogen is up there and it's, you know, they, the the legs can do the work. And it's always it's always muscular when I'm failing at those workouts mm-hmm. when I feel like I haven't had that uh, glycogen replenishment it's always in my legs my legs feel like crap and i just can't turn the pedals like i need to that sounded like a, an advertisement from like a lobbyist <laughs> group for a chip manufacturer or something totally <laughs> they should hire me so yeah yeah, yeah. frito lay if you're listening to this podcast i can uh, i can be your spokesperson for for cycling efficacy of uh, salty potato based snacks you may gain weight like crazy, but uh, you're going to hit those workouts. <laughs> Although those are mostly fat and not carbs, so they're probably not even very good for you. 
Uh, one other thing that I kind of wanted to uh, throw in, again, another two cents of mine for, for train low, uh, race high. I see it as sort of, you know, if I was put, putting my coach hat on, I see it very much as a, as a marginal gain strategy. Like if you've kind of tapped every other approach or most other approaches um, in, in your training and nutrition, and then you're, you're still plateauing, this could be something you want to try. And this is, I think, the point, Stephanie, you were trying to make earlier, that mm-hmm. for the recreational athlete is you just want to get the other stuff right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, never, I never recommend this to people because I'm just, I don't work with the, the caliber of athlete who has done all of the other stuff correctly and has tapped all of those other things out. Because as you say, like um, uh, training training low is harder and harder is also another way of thinking about that is harder is more stressful also. And usually people I coach are, you know, their parents and they have full-time jobs and they probably want to reduce the amount of global stress that they're experiencing rather than add to it through nutritional stress. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you that it's, you know, it's not a strategy that I'm i I'm a huge fan of for, for most folks. Yeah. Like you said, I've never, I've never, Outsider research never like told someone to like, we're going to take this approach. I mean, it's the difference of like having like Kipchoge, like having a drafter. Yep. If I were to have a drafter, it would give me probably no, absolutely no gain. But for him, it's probably giving him, you know, an extra five seconds or a half a second off his, his mile time. Well, now you're speaking our language because he's a lot faster. So because <laughs> aerodynamic drag is, you know, yeah. power required to overcome increases in a cubic fashion yeah. with speed. So for him, it actually makes a big difference because yeah. just because he's so fast. But that's mm-hmm. a totally different point. I, I think I to- <laughs> I'm sorry I hijacked your your example. I just couldn't like couldn't not swing in that at that uh, at that uh, oh. aerodynamic one. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that though. That's awesome. <laughs> um, for the folks that uh, that do want to give uh, train low. Uh, a try. How do you make sure that uh, they are still able to train the gut and they're still, you know, uh, so that they can properly race high? Yeah. So for your, tr- so only initially initiate that train low approach for sessions that are maybe like a recovery session or steady states or anything like that. Um, outside of that, you're training the gut. You're having your all your carbohydrate intakes, you're meeting your needs, whatever they may be. If you're having, you know, six grams per kilogram, nine, still meet those carbohydrate needs fueled mm-hmm. throughout your workouts. But what's what's important to note is a lot of the people who do that train low approach, elite athletes, they're doing two a days, right? So they're having yeah. that high intensity session in the evening and then one in the morning. I don't want individuals who are doing like one training session a day to not eat carbohydrates for the rest of the day. Like that's not the goal. So (laughs) unless you're doing two a days or you can make that gap a little bit smaller, I don't even recommend trying it. Um, If you want to give it a shot just to see how it feels, go for it, but don't, don't go crazy on it. Right. Only do it a couple of sessions, see how you feel. Well, it was interesting how you commented earlier about um, using that first intense workout to drain all the the glycogen mm-hmm. from your your stores. So, if that's the case, that that makes sense because you're forcing the body into that extremely fat requiring stage. Uh, there's nothing left to to draw from aside from the fat metabolism. So, um, yeah, so it, it makes sense from I guess a kind of logical standpoint but uh, again it's it's not something that i am in a rush to go try just because i usually <laughs> feel terrible when i don't have enough carbs um, but certainly um like i know when we've had other athletes on they've talked about how iron man for example some people see it as an eating competition like how can you digest enough <laughs> carbs and intake enough carbs to be able to uh to sustain your performance level and i think it was when we were talking to cody beals 
but he had, uh, or maybe it was in a personal conversation where he had brought up um, Andy Potts recommended just eating the, the most ridiculous foods, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich while you're on the bike, yes. because it was so hard to digest. And if you can, if you can manage to get that down, then your, your gut is ready for everything. So, you know, <laughs> just take cold pizza or sandwiches or something like that. That's not in gel form, not kind of pre-digested for you. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting viewpoints that everyone has around this. And I think everyone kind of finds their own little sweet spot that seems to work for them. I love the peanut butter recommendation, that sandwich. Like I, I, if you can tolerate whole foods for those super long, try like whole triathlon events, or if you're running an ultra marathon, like try to do it. Cause if not, you're not going to be able to sustain off of gels. Like, could you imagine eating 30 gels in a day? That's absolutely ridiculous. My gut would be trash. <laughs> I remember watching, uh, I think it was a Tour de France. It might have, it was one of the Grand Tours, but it was uh, Tom Dumoulin had to rush off to the side because he'd had so many gels that his GI system was basically just revolting. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like that, I mean, it happens to pro athletes who are used to this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and cyclists, they often have little... Um, just like care packages that they get through at the race that have, you know, bananas, something that's a little bit more solid, but I think so many of them are just used to eating so many gels that it, uh, eventually your stomach just has enough. And I can see that being a huge problem. It is. Well, when you have, so when you have too many carbohydrates, specifically fructose, it can cause rapid gastric emptying and it causes water to like flux into your intestines, which mm -hmm. can lead to like, vomiting, not feeling good, cramps and those sort of things. So if you can't like for again, like those long races, if you can have some sort of fat or pro, especially protein with it, um, it it's, will save you the long run. Like it'll be great. I think just telling someone the term rapid gastric emptying will be enough to <laughs> make them concerned about it. Yeah, I like that too. Awesome. Um, so switching gears a little bit, uh, the last thing that I wanted to to ask your thoughts on, Stephanie, is uh, how do you balance performance and uh, fat loss? So let's say, and I'm like, I'm going to use myself again in this in this case. Uh, I could definitely, I know for a fact, uh, and this is not vanity, uh, that I can stand to lose a few pounds of fat um, because I've actually had like a DEXA scan done. So I have a very pretty good handle on what my accurate body composition is. And uh, uh, if I wanted to lose fat while still being able to train uh, you know, reasonably well and not, not hate my life. Um, what sort of advice would you give me? Yeah. So it's a really good point because a lot of individuals want to that. And it's a very, it's a very heavy balancing act because, mm. you know, you got to decide if your performance is more important or if your body composition is more important, because quite frankly, your body composition does not impact your performance. Now, if you were to gain, you know, 40 pounds out in an off season, then that would impact <laughs> your performance. But like a couple yep. pounds isn't going to cause you to drastically slow down or anything like that. So instead right. of focusing on losing that weight really, really fast or kind of dropping it, the primary goal would be to more so body recomposition. So maybe in your off season or if you are in a training season, Increase that protein intake a little bit, maybe modify that fat intake just a little bit. I wouldn't touch carbohydrates during a, a training season, but maybe if you're in an off season okay, um, so that you're mainly increasing that muscle mass. And as a byproduct, you would also lose fat mass because by increasing protein alone, 
without any strength training or physical activity or exercise of any kind, you can actually increase your your muscle mass just by increasing protein alone hmm. without doing any extra physical activity. So you're going to automatically lose some fat mass by increasing that protein intake. Interesting. So just a, a, just a small tweak to uh, to the, the macros. And it's interesting that you, I mean, maybe it's not interesting that you point out not to touch carbohydrates because we just spent the last, you know, 35 <laughs> minutes talking about how important they are to training. Uh, but that, yeah, that does sound, that does sound uh, very doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it could be as simple as adding a protein shake to your day if you're, you know, can't tolerate any more meat or anything like that. The other thing that's important for a lot of people to realize is that uh, you were kind of, I, I don't know if you directly mentioned this or intimated it, but uh, basically slow changes are mm-hmm. key. Um, and everyone, it's our society, instant gratification. We want results tomorrow. We want to see the changes right away. And mm-hmm. I think so many people get caught in that where they try something and give up on it before even giving it a chance to work. And that's just, it's a huge societal problem. But uh, what, I guess, what would be the recommendation you have for timescales for looking for some of these changes? Um, Is it over the course of a couple months or six to eight months or a year? Yeah. According to research, sustainable weight loss is 0.5 to 1.2% per week. So if you're 200 pounds, that's going to be one pound per week. But if you're less, it's going to be less and and vice versa. Um, But when it comes to athletes and your performances takes a little bit more of a priority, I will actually aim for close to that 0.5% or even a little bit less. Mm. And I would focus more so on body composition if there is access to like DEXA scans or, or something like that versus just the scale alone. Because The problem with the scale with endurance athletes is endurance athletes have such huge fluctuations because carbohydrate intake impacts weight, um, fueling, hydration, electrolyte intake, and inflammation even. So many things impact weight alone that I wouldn't necessarily use just the scale if if I could help it. Um, But other things, if you don't have access to like body composition, use clothes, measuring tapes, something of that nature, or even take progress pictures. Because if you're changing your body composition, you'll see those changes before you'll see a change on the scale. Interesting. That's really interesting advice. And and I think uh, totally valid. And, you know, you mentioned glycogen. There's a, there's a whole, uh, you know, bucket load of water that's, that's uh, tied in with glycogen storage too, isn't there? So like if you're, you know, carb loading, or even if you're eating properly for an athlete, you would be storing quite a bit of water in the muscle as well. Yeah. So for every gram of carbohydrate you store, there comes along three grams of water. So yeah, for wow. the average male, which is about 170 pounds, and I think it's like 20% body fat, They can store anywhere from 300 to 700 grams of carbohydrates, but that can actually be pushed for endurance athletes to upwards of 1,200 grams. Hmm. And then that that basically kilograms of water. Exactly. (laughs) That's huge. And that yeah. And so you you at the end of a workout, you would be so much so much less heavy. I remember Mm -hmm. when I first you know when I was younger and. Uh, much more vain. I would always like weigh myself after workouts. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm so much lighter than I was before. And meanwhile, I just, you know, sweated out a liter and a half of water and burned mm-hmm. off some glycogen. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Your, your weight fluctuates so much, which is also another good point. If I do have client like athletes weigh, um, and they, maybe they weigh daily or maybe they'll weigh once a week, I take averages. Mm-hmm. So if they weigh daily, I'll take that weekly average. I won't do a day-to-day analysis because that doesn't tell me anything. But if I take a weekly average, I can kind of see what they did that week, how hard their training sessions were, were, um, if it's a female, if like their menstrual cycle is happening, things like that, and be like, okay, 
they didn't have any changes this week. What can we modify? Or maybe like, all right, this looks good. They're, they're seeing some body composition changes. From an engineering standpoint, what comes into my brain is like signal to noise ratio. So you're trying to, <laughs> you're trying to eliminate yeah. the noise from all these uh, measurements. And I, I think that's great, but it's, it's so hard for people when you step on a scale and you see, oh, I it weigh is. half a kilogram or a kilogram more than I did yesterday. And yes, that may all be water weight, but it's very difficult with even with the smart scales to be able to actually say, yes, this is water, this is whatever. Or did I just have a big meal last night or, or, or. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a psychological game. So mm -hmm. what's, what's almost interesting is if you were to take out the, the daily monitoring. So like some of the smart scales that upload to, you know, cloud accounts and maybe you restrict the individual's ability to see that and you're monitoring it, but they're not able to see it. Um, so that would be, yeah, it, it's almost like a controlled study, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if that would be any better. It would have an impact and they wait for you to process the results and provide them with, this is your average weight over the week. And this is, you know, week over week what you're doing. But uh, yeah, there's certainly challenges there. It's tough to take our egos out of it for sure. Yes. Yeah. And that's a really great point. Um, when I worked at the, at the collegiate level with our athletes, we didn't share with them the data if it was not necessary, um, because you do have that mental component or they may be like overanalyze on it. Um, I actually will, tr if used to, when I used to be able to do like import person counseling sessions, I wouldn't necessarily show everyone all the data unless I found that it was pertinent. It was for me to help them make decisions for their training and for their nutrition strategy. Um, but if it wasn't required, then I don't want them to cloud their mind with it. Um, I know not everyone can have a coach. Um, so if you are analyzing the data yourself, it's it's very important to, to check in with yourself, take a step back from the data and actually see how you feel. Do you wake up feeling good? Or do you wake up feeling trash? Was your workout trash or was it fantastic? So it, it is, if you can take a step back from it, or if you have a coach, have them take a look at the data and they'll only provide you what's necessary. Yeah, I find as, as a coach to, to you know, a, a bunch of athletes that I fill that role frequently where it's just, you know, just telling people to calm down. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's, this is a single data point. You know, a data point is not a trend make. Let's mm -hmm. see what happens tomorrow. Let's see what happens the next day. And then we can, we, can, we can jump to conclusions or we can make some modifications if we need to make modifications. I think that, that applies in, in, in like in, oh, certainly in any kind of nutritional intervention, but also mm -hmm. in training as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, at least on the surface, you could take this as being counter to a lot of things that we say in the podcast here, <laughs> how data can actually be dangerous sometimes. We're usually oh, yeah. advocating the use of data, but uh, you need to be careful how you interpret it. And that's, mm -hmm. yeah, the interpretation is where the real challenge is and where the real skill is. Yeah. Totally. So, Stephanie, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Um, if uh, folks want to get in touch with you, if let's say they, they want to hire you as a coach, uh, need some nutrition advice, what is the best way to do that? Yeah. So you can either go to my website at stephaniesmallcoaching.com um, or I do quite a bit of stuff on Instagram. You can send me a message or take a look at my work there. And that's stephaniesmall.rd as the, as the handle. So that's where I'm most active at. Perfect. And of course, we'll post those uh, to the show notes, listeners, and we'll also include a link to the article that we kicked the show off with. And uh, I'll also specifically highlight Stephanie's um, you know, guide to reading scientific literature. That post was was great. I really <laughs> the enjoyed it. Notes. But yeah, that's right. The, uh, the annotations. Um, listeners, thank you, as always, for uh, spending a bit of time with us and uh, for 
listening. Uh, if you enjoy the show, tell a friend first and foremost. Uh, also consider supporting us on Patreon and that's at uh, patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks everyone. No, 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 no,